with me. Come, Holy Spirit, now and move powerfully among your people through the preaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have deigned to fill jars of clay with treasure. Lord, I come as, as a clay pot before a bunch of other clay pots, and I pray that you would fill us now with your spirit and with the truth of God's word, and that we, be, we would be transformed by the hearing and receiving of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I didn't say we were cracked pots, just clay pots. We have, these tre- we have these treasures and jars of clay. Well, when I, I come to a text like the one that we heard in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, I'm always concerned about how to preach a scripture like this without descending into moralism. Do you know what I mean when I'm talking about moralism? I, I, in other words... Um, And when we talk about moralism, what we're saying is that basically Christianity is a list of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. Now, certainly following Jesus does entail a way of life. There is a way of life. There is a Christian ethic. But sometimes we're we're tempted to reduce following Jesus to a list of things we can't do and of things that we should do. It's easy to see how that could happen when you get a list like the one St. Paul gives us. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. How's your political season going? (laughs) Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And so when we hear a list of things like that, we're tempted to say something like, okay, so that's what being a Christian is. Don't, don't do these bad things and be nice to people. I've got it. But if that's what we take away from the text that we just heard out of Colossians, we are missing the wonderful good news that the Holy Spirit is speaking to his church through the Apostle Paul this morning. Now, our lives, our very being, and, if, and here's your $5 phrase for the day, our very ontological reality. See, I just have to prove I did go to school occasionally. Our lives, our very essence, are transformed by the gospel, by the gospel, and not by a list of rules. Your life is transformed by the gospel and not a list of regulations. The gospel is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and not what we do to earn God's favor. I need to repeat that. That is essential, foundational. I'd even say fundamental Christianity. The gospel is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and not what we do for God in order to earn his favor. And so let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the gospel. This is the good news. God himself put on human flesh and came to us in Jesus of Nazareth. 
And during his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ demonstrated God's inbreaking new creation, the kingdom of God. He lived it out. He expressed the kingdom of God in his life. He did it through healing the sick. He did it through delivering the, those who were under demonic oppression, men and women whose lives were being destroyed by evil forces. He broke the power of, of the evil in their life and delivered them. He created abundance in the face of scarcity. He took a happy meal and fed 5,000 people. He preached God's love and favor to the poor. He preached God's love and favor to those who were rejected and marginalized by society, to those who thought they were too far gone into sin and corruption to be loved by God. And he said, I have come for you. And then we took this Jesus, this good man, this innocent man, the man within whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form, and we said, you are not the Savior. You are not the God we're looking for. We'd rather be in charge our, ourselves. Thank you very much. And so we used a corrupt government and corrupt legal system and corrupt religious leaders to falsely try, convict, and sentence him to death. And we stripped him naked. And we whipped him till the flesh hung in strips off of his back. And we nailed his tortured body to a piece of wood, a gibbet, a cross, and we hung him up to die. And as he hung there in agony, we didn't leave him alone even then. We mocked and jeered and scoffed at him as he gasped for breath and as the blood wept from his wounds. We really, really hated this good, innocent man who had never done anything but love us and tell us the truth. But what we didn't see and what we couldn't know is that as we poured out, and yes, it was, folks, if you think, oh, if I would have been there, I would have been a different case. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It goes back to that wonderful Lutheran hymn, Who Was the Guilty? You know, Who has done this to you? I, Lord Jesus, I, the, I am the one who betrayed thee. I crucified but what we didn't see and what we couldn't know is that as we poured out our hatred and injustice and violence and evil on this good, innocent man, he did the last amazing love for people like me and you who don't deserve it. He did this. He accepted all of our sin and all of our evil and all of our hatred. He took it upon himself. He carried that burden upon himself. And what's more, he took all the punishment, the wrath that God's justice demands be poured out upon evil. He took it upon himself. And we didn't know it. So when his few faithful friends buried him, we sealed up the grave and put soldiers around it and guarded it just in case to make sure that he wouldn't get out. But our hatred and rejection could not overcome the love we tried to bury. The grave could not hold him. Death could not defeat him. And on the third day, he rose again in triumphant victory, bursting forth from the, from the tomb, more truly alive than any human being has ever been in the world. And for 40 days, he showed off God's victory to his friends. For 40 days. It says, in, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he was seen at one time by more than 500 people at one time. And at the end of that period, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and listened to me. This is what we call the session. He now rules and reigns the universe with kingly authority 
at this moment, not later on, but right now, he rules and reigns right now. And you say, well, it doesn't look like it. Oh, just wait, because he's coming again. He is coming again. And he will establish the rule and reign of God, and his kingdom will endure forever and ever. Thanks be to God. That's the gospel. And that is the only thing that can save you. Not your efforts, not trying real hard to be good, just the gospel. And because of all this, because of the gospel, every barrier that we ever erected between us and God, Jesus Christ has destroyed on that old rugged cross. And so, as it says in the previous chapter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, when we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness Oh, my goodness, that sounds like penal substitution. Has N.T. Wright read this passage? Mm. Our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the fallen powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle triumphing over them by the cross. That's the gospel. And hear me, receiving this good news accepting this good news, placing our faith in Jesus Christ who is at the heart of this good news and being born again by the Holy Spirit is the only thing that has the power to save us. And so what does that, so what does that list, therefore, what does that list of sinful actions and attitudes that are to be renounced that Paul presents us in Colossians chapter 3, what does that have to do with the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the deal. You may have noticed when I was sharing the gospel with you that the gospel, this is critical, is not a set of philosophical propositions. It is not a set of mathematical axioms. It's not a major thesis, minor thesis, and deduction. No, the gospel is a story. And when we hear the gospel, we are, you are, invited to become a part of the story and to be defined by that story. And I hope you hear it. It's actually there. I mean, I'm going to bring it out in just a few minutes in Colossians chapter 3. Now, you need to know this. First of all, you need to know that human beings are hardwired. I've been, this is a project I'm working on, an academic project I'm working on, but I've been, uh, I've gotten into some of the neurological research. So this is just straight up scientific, physiological, neurological research. And this is what they have found. Human beings are genetically hardwired to understand reality through stories. Stories are the things that, that define us. As a matter of fact, it's the, thing, the major thing that has the power to grip us. And I know that to be a fact because when I'm droning on and on in the pul- pulpit, and all of a sudden I say, let me tell you a story, people go from this to this. <laughs> He's going to tell a story. There's no telling what he's going to say this time. (laughs) Stories define us. We are the only creatures on planet Earth that we know of that tell stories. We are invited to become a part of a story. Every one of us is going to be defined by some kind of story. Right now, wherever you are in your life, Far away from Christ or deeply in Christ, you are being defined by a story. Some of us 
are going to, we are, some of us are going to be defined by stories that are not ultimately true. Only the gospel is ultimately true. And these lesser stories are not, they do not give life, they actually bring destruction into our lives. Some of us are defined by a story of rejection and condemnation. No one can ever really love me for who I am. Some of us are defined by narratives of addiction. And it's the one thing we think about all the time. And if we are defined by a narrative of addiction right now, you're thinking about how I'm going to get my next drink or my next fix or whatever it is. Some of us are defined by a story of social class and success and achievement and consumerism. Some of us are defined by a family story or ethnicity. Family stories are extremely powerful. Folks, I am not making it up when I tell you that I'm still mad because of my family story telling me that the Yankees came and took all our stuff. <laughs> Those blue back Yankees. Now, now um, Ty Rice said at the first service when I said that, he said, and it's at my house. Because <laughs> he's from Michigan. <clears throat> That happened over 100 years ago when we're mad about it in my family. I don't even know the stuff they took, but they took it. I know. Some of us are defined by our professions. As a matter of fact, being a professional is especially tempting to, be, to define yourself through that. Some of us are defined by the law if we're in, in legal profession. We, we, we are indoctrinated to see the world through that lens. Or if we're in the medical professions, medicine can define you. Or if you're in the academic world, the academy will seek to define you. There's a story that you have been indoctrinated into, and that's what professions do. And if we're not careful, that's going to identify us who we are. We will have no other identity beyond that. And that is not a life-giving story. But when we come to faith in Christ, we literally die to the old stories that used to define us, and we're given a new story, the gospel, that is hidden, and our life is hidden, protected, and kept safe in the life of God. And so it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 and four, through 4, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died. It, he doesn't say, it's like you died. It's a metaphor that you died. No, the scripture says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, Jesus isn't like your life. It isn't like, and by the way, this is so important. Listen, Christianity, you do not accessorize your life with Jesus. Jesus is not an accessory to enhance your standard of living. Christ, if you are truly a follower of Jesus, is your life. That's the story. He is your defining reality. He is your story. And Christ, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To accept Christ, to be born again, is to be defined by a different story that dismantles every other story. And here's what it says in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to get right to it. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have what? You've put off the old self. The word there is anthropos. You put off the old man, the old human being. You have a new defining story. That person's gone. And now you have a new reality that you are living into. Put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And listen, here, here are some stories that can define you. Here there is not, Jew, there is not Greek and Jew. 
There was a huge division in the Jewish culture in the first century between the Jew and the Gentile. Greek was just a, a generic way of saying every other Gentile. The world was divided between those two people, Jew and Gentile. But Paul is saying in now that's not a, that story does not have the power to ultimately define you. Neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. What in the world is a Scythian? Well, look, the barbarians were bad, and they thought the Scythians were worse. The barba- Scythians were barbarians to barbarians. Slave or free, socioeconomic separation. No, that story doesn't define you anymore. Paul says, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. He is the defining reality. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. In Colossians 3.1, Paul begins by saying, and I'm going to try to bring this together. By the way, this sermon made perfect sense when I was preparing it. It was awesome. <laughs> Paul begins by saying, since you have, it actually said in the translation we heard this morning, if you have been raised in Christ, but it, it is a conditional, for, as a conditional term, it means basically, since you have been raised with Christ. What is Paul talking about when he says, since you've been raised with Christ? Well, if we were to look back at Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, in that verse, the apostle is referring to coming to genuine, life-giving, life-transforming faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about that faith and baptism as the effectual sign of the new birth. And so this is what Paul says. I'm going to read you that passage. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. We are buried with him... In baptism, again, it doesn't say it's like we were buried with him in baptism. Or it's, we're metaphorically buried with him in baptism. No, Paul says, he says, you were, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were also raised with him, not kind of raised, not like you were raised. You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's what he's saying. By placing my faith in Jesus Christ, you and I become identified with Jesus Christ and to the point that Jesus' story, this is important, we become so identified with Jesus through faith and baptism, we are so united to him that Jesus' story, the gospel, is your personal story. That's your story. So if you want to know what my story is, you need to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's my story. That's the story of Ben now. So just as Jesus was put to death and was buried, and we are made a part of that story when we're plunged under the waters of baptism, we're buried with Christ in baptism, we die with Christ in baptism. Yes, even when we bring little bitty babies up here and put them in that water, it's not a sweet little symbol. That baby is dying and being raised to a new life. And when we rise up out of the water of baptism, we are united with Christ's resurrection victory. So here's the deal. Because of baptism, because we're so united with Christ in God's, in God's work of the new birth in our lives, this is important. Easter is not a story about Jesus only. Easter is your story. Easter is your personal story. And so in chapter 3, Paul ramps up all of this identity talk. And he takes us to the next part of the story. What's the next part of the story? Christ died. Christ rose from the dead. What happens next? He ascends to the Father. And there he reigns right now, this very moment, as King of kings and Lord of lords at the Father's right hand in glory. We are united to Christ. And this is where we get to that list. We are united to Christ in his ascension. 
So that when Paul says this, he says, when you are, he says, seek the things that are above, not earthly things. Put, put, put to death, therefore, sexual immorality and impurity, evil desire, passion, covetousness, which, are idol, which is idolatry. What he is saying is this. He's saying, look, the ascension is about Jesus being ruler today. And so when we are with Christ in his ascension, I'm going to live under the lordship of Christ. And those old things don't define me. I'm out now under a new power and a new authority. This is basically another way of saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God is now ruling my life, and those old things are not signs of God's authority and reign, but of rebellion against God. Let me see if I can wrap this up by applying this to our lives in a practical way. This year marks an extremely significant 50th anniversary. In September of 1966, just three days after my fifth birthday, Star Trek premiered on NBC. (laughs) That's right, the greatest TV show, not Gunsmoke, but Star Trek of the 1960s, was born 50 years ago. And just a few years later, when I was in the fourth grade, Star Trek became syndicated. And I could watch it every week over and over and over again. I was captivated by the story of space exploration and the characters the show introduced. And I was not the only one because my best friend, Jeff Aiken, Jeff Aiken's dad was the dentist in town. Can you imagine being a dentist named Aiken? I don't, that's just not right. But Jeff loved the show, too, and we did what eight-year-old boys naturally do when they love a TV show or a movie or a comic book or something. We started playing Star Trek every day at school during recess. And I was always Spock. (laughs) And Jeff was always Kirk. You could say that I put on Spock. When I played the story, I tried to be logical like Spock. I tried to talk like Spock. I used the Vulcan nerve pinch like Spock. It didn't work for me. Tried to do the Vulcan mind meld like Spock. By the way, uh, as an aside, there was this little redheaded girl who played Star Trek with us. Now, she told Jeff and me that she wasn't playing with us, and she didn't want to have anything to do with us in our weird little Star Trek thing, but that that did not keep us from including her. So much to her irritation, we designated her to be whatever Klingon or monster (laughs) we were fighting that day. I enjoyed playing with that little red-headed girl so much that I decided to marry her. (laughs) And did. It it was my self-appointed duty to keep our play as consistent with the show as possible. I made sure that Kirk and Spock were acting appropriately in character. And you had to call stuff by the right name. Folks, we didn't have radios in Star Trek. We had communicators, and they are subspace communication devices. (laughs) And we didn't have lasers or blasters. We had phasers. you got to get your nomenclature correct. If you're going to play the story. Now, Johnny Fulp was another friend. And Johnny Fulp uh, Fulp was not a Star Trek fan. He was a speed racer fan. And he wanted to play with me and Jeff. And his idea was that we can just blend speed racer and Star Trek. (laughs) But Jeff and I were having none of it. It wasn't the right story. 
You can't blend Speed Racer's powerful Mach 5 with the USS Enterprise. It just doesn't work. And strangely enough, that brings us back to Colossians chapter 3. The, the gospel is the true story of the whole world. God invites us to be captivated, entranced by that beautiful story. It's the only true story you and I can ever really become a part of that will give life. It's the only story that is ultimately and eternally true. In this passage, this list that we got of things we don't do anymore is Paul telling us you can't play Star Trek and Speed Racer at the same time. You, that, that sexual immorality, impurity, malice, slanderous language, obscene talk. That's another story. That's not your story. That's Speed Racer. Well, maybe not exactly, but that doesn't match the gospel. And when you play well, you play the story right. Old patterns of life mirror a different story. And just as being in the Jesus story puts us under the power of God so that we experience a... And by the way, if you don't know this, oh my goodness gracious, I want you to experience that. A real dunamis, a real power, the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Following the Jesus story, being in the Jesus story, if you will, playing the Jesus story, puts us under the power of God. And the other stories put us under the power of false gods. And that's why Paul says it's idolatry. And now, for the rest of our lives and into eternity, we are invited to play this story. You want to know something that's really wonderful? Uh, in, in all of uh, the created world, the more intelligent animals become, the more they want to play. It's interesting. One of my favorite things to do is see a video, a nature video, of something like a bear and a wolf. You know, all of a sudden, you know, normally they would, they're, they're top predators. They don't usually get along. But for some reason, occasionally, they'll find each other in the woods and they'll play. And the bear adopts a play posture and the wolf adopts a play posture. And for a little while, you know, it's like the lion laying down with the lamb. The kingdom of God breaks in. It's just delightful to see that. You and I are made to want to play, and you never get too old to play. As a matter of fact, if you think you do, you, just, you need to become a grandparent. You will do stuff, you will play with your grandchildren in ways that are humiliating, basically. So when Annalise was at our house uh, a couple of weeks ago when they came during vacation, Annalise, my oldest grandchild, uh, she's uh, three years old, and uh, she, we got her a kiddie pool for her and Jacob and Jonathan, or her cousins. So we got a kiddie pool for the cousins and everything. It's one of those sort of uh, ones that had the plastic sides that go kind of high. You unroll it, and it's got a, a rubberized bottom. It's about two and a half feet deep. And so she, she got it. She wanted to get in that kiddie pool, and we put it out on the back deck. And, and I just got in there with her. <laughs> and, and it was great. And I made paper airplanes and played with the kids. We are created to play. And here's the deal. That's what the Christian life is. It's not drudgery. It's not, it's not this burden of, of self-flagellation. Yeah, every time you play something, if you play a game well, there are rules that make the game fun. 
and we were invited to play the story. I put on Spock. We're all called to put on Christ. Put him on and play the game well. And just as every week, Jeff and I were refreshed by going back to the TV set, tuning in Channel 13 from Columbia, South Carolina, with the rotating antenna, and watch, we, got, we got inspired all over again. We were refreshed and brought back and actually shown deeper levels of the story by walk, watching that next episode of Star Trek. Every Sunday, we come back to where the story is told fresh every time we get together at this table. And we hear it all over again, and we play it here, we enjoy it here, and then what we're called to do is we go out and putting on Christ, we live out that story of Jesus in the world. And the reason we don't do the stuff Paul says not to do is because that's not your story, Christian brother, Christian sister. That's not your story. We have the gospel as the story. It is the only story that gives life. We sang that gospel story in two amazing songs in our praise set this morning. I mean... Thanks be to God, he gets it into us in so many different ways. And I just, I, mean, I don't always just break everything up, break the stride up. You know, usually I get on the liturgy train, we leave the station, we get on the track. But folks, we just got to stop and say, that is good, good news. What a wonderful story. Let's go play. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand and pledge allegiance to our true homeland in the words of the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> we believe in one God. Jesus prepares to lead us in the prayers of the people this morning. I want to remind you that as he lifts up those categories for prayer, that is your, that's your prompt and your invitation to pray aloud whatever the Lord might put on your heart as well so that we might agree in prayer with you. I ask your prayers for God's people throughout the world. For Justin, Archbishop of Canterbury.